Tonight I'd like to talk more about the roots of goodness or the beautiful mind. When we look at our list of wholesome factors of consciousness, we find qualities such as non-greed, as we saw yesterday, non-hatred, non-violence, so forth. And I think that these statements, in terms of negatives or of absence, suggest that when the clouds of hatred and aversion, of greed and attachment, of violence and so forth, are absent, what is there is very positive is very wholesome, is very good, not just neutral. Rather, there is acceptance, there is love, there is compassion already present then. And sure enough, when you look at the Theravada Abhidhamma model of the mind and its functions, you'll find that the group of these wholesome qualities is called Sobhana, or beautiful, beautiful mind states. And somewhat similarly in the Tibetan tradition of Dzogchen, that Stephen mentioned earlier today, we find the view that our very basic nature, our very basic being, is Buddha. It's Buddha Samantabhadra, the all-good one. An image that's often used to illustrate this is that of the clear blue sky. Even when there's fog, when there are clouds and rain and storms, the clear blue open sky remains. It's always there, unobstructed, untouched, really, by the clouds and the fog and the storm. And we can see consciousness in a similar way. Though there is the fog of ignorance and of all the other klesha, the mind in its actual nature is untouched by that. Even when it doesn't look or feel that way, the actual nature of our mind is good. The very basis is good. It's a very positive outlook. Because it means that we're not... This practice, Dharma practice, means we're not caught in an almost hopeless struggle against ignorance and against the klesha if we had to sort of finish with them, finish them all up, and then start somehow out of, I don't know what, to make love and compassion appear, it would seem almost impossible. But in fact, we don't have to go through an almost complete personality transformation, where we go from here, where it's all wrong, 
very basically bad or sinful, on this endless gradual journey of improvement until we finally become the ideal person and anything else isn't good enough. Rather, it says that we're basically okay. We're all right. And we can relax. But we forget, or perhaps we don't know clearly enough. We're a little bit like Indra, the king of gods, who apparently once decided that he wanted to find out how it was to live on earth. And he took birth as a little piggy, a little piglet. was born as a little pig, started doing what little piglets do, and totally forgot that who he really was, was King Indra. And only when whatever happened to him, he died and he sort of woke up and he remembered, he realized he was really the king of gods. And it's not that he became Indra, the king of gods. Again, he had always been Indra, the king of gods. He had just forgotten. Now, fortunately, even in our ignorance, the nature, the beautiful mind is strong enough so that from time to time it shines through. So in a way we're not merely dependent on belief. Rather we've all had many tastes of this in our life. And therefore there's a basis for us to trust. And I think that kind of faith and trust are really important aspects in all of this, in our practice, in our being. That sense that we don't need to fabricate, that we actually couldn't fabricate love and compassion and care. Rather, we trust that it's already present in us. But perhaps what we need to do is to reconnect or rediscover, uncover, or remember what's always been here. So when we speak about practicing openness, allowing acceptance, then we're doing really just that, reconnecting, re discovering that quality within us. And talking about allowing and acceptance really means we're talking about love. So sitting here, being mindful, facing, confronting, feeling what's going on, exposing ourselves, it means we train, we exercise, we connect with acceptance and with love and with kindness. So that open space of allowing, of welcoming, is not really different from love. 
It allows things to be what they are. It embraces and accepts them the way they are. Love is called metta in Pali, or maichi in Sanskrit. And the root in, from the Pali word comes from mid, to soften. And in the Sanskrit word, maichi means friend. So it's what softens the mind, a deep kind of friendliness. And it's turned towards, or its object is beings. The wish that beings might be happy, ourselves or others. But it's in a way the same attitude, or the same inner space as acceptance, as allowing. We practice it as acceptance towards situations or towards experience, moment to moment, while we sit or stand or walk or do our things in daily life. It's, we call it acceptance when it's the attitude we're practicing towards knee pains, towards restlessness, towards a noise somewhere, towards feelings that we don't like or that we didn't expect or didn't want. And we practice it as love and as kindness towards beings as we do it in the metta meditation. But it's that same space, it's that same attitude, it's that same quality. We could use another model or illustration than that of the blue sky and the clouds. Comparing the practice of love and kindness to growing flowers. There too, everything is already present in the bulb, even in the little tiny seeds. In a way, the complete flower is there. A unique flower is already there. But it needs earth, water, air, sun, light. So our practice, in a way, is to provide all this. Bringing awareness, interest, care, energy, perseverance, gentleness, all that. But the growing and the flowering, the blossoming, the flower does by itself. It's funny, in English, you grow flowers. I can't do that in German. We can't say, I grow a flower or I grow potatoes. They have to grow by themselves. So we can provide what is necessary But the growing takes place by itself, the unfolding. And we can trust that, and we must trust that. 
in doing that, we start with ourselves. Start with self-acceptance. And I teach three-day metta retreats, loving-kindness retreats, and often after a day or so it becomes clear how, for many people, how difficult it is to even accept, to really deeply accept or, or find love or kindness for themselves. So often we don't go much further than doing the metta for ourselves. Sometimes just end up doing metta for ourselves for the rest of the three days. And it's important because if we can't accept this being as it is, this being that is really the closest to us, isn't it? How could we accept anyone else? Sometimes we have this idea like, I shouldn't care for myself, I should love others. But if we really look, it's not an attitude that we can have somewhere out there while in here we're closed. It has to come from in here. So we can start to play or experiment with forgiveness and with metta and kindness for ourselves. Really getting a sense what that would mean, how that would be like to trust that we're all right, to trust that our base, our basis is all good, is beautiful. See if we can feel that within ourselves, to really hear that, and actually take time. In this retreat, sometimes in the beginning, and the end of a sitting, a whole sitting, just getting a sense, resting within, and getting a sense what that would mean, trusting our goodness, feeling our okayness. to really do the metta meditation, to find ways of doing it. There are a number of examples, in a way, that are the ones that I've done every night. There's some more traditional ones, too. Some people find it helpful to work with a more systematic repetition of words. Find out for yourself what works or what different ways work. How to do it. Play with it. Perhaps you can find a word that touches or a sentence or a question. It could be, my, may I be happy? May you be happy? It could be just looking what it means to give love or to receive love. Sometimes we're so busy trying to love others or give love or radiate love or all these ways we can think of giving love. See what it would mean to receive it. Can we receive love? Do we feel even okay to do that? Are we aren't we supposed to give love most? Really look into that, not much thinking about it, to sit quietly and get a sense of what that would mean. 
opening up to all that. There too, it helps to remember the preciousness of this situation, the fragility and fleetingness, setting priorities, clear perspectives on our life. Then, work in different ways with the person we love, perhaps extending to a number of persons, people we love, perhaps including people we find very indifferent towards, and remember that they too really want to be happy and don't want to suffer. And if we're more courageous, we can include people we find difficult. And again, not having too high ideals or demands, it doesn't mean we really have to love the people we hate. Maybe we can, again, go for some peaceful coexistence, or even just to respect or to think about the fact that they too would like to be happy. Even the ones we can't stand and we think they're hopeless. It's the same. They like to be happy. And they don't want to suffer even for a minute or a second. Sometimes just to remember that does something. We can contemplate on the connectedness with all of life, with other beings. The whole range of contemplations that the Tibetans use Thinking of our being dependent, of our dependency on numberless other beings in almost everything we are and we need and we know and we can do and know how to do, to sometimes take time to try to somewhat systematically go through all these chains can take a piece of bread that's in front of us at breakfast and you can go as far back as you want. You can think of farmers who plow the fields and I've watched sometimes freshly plowed fields where hundreds of birds come because the earth is turned up from inside out innumerable little insects and worms and creepy crawlies who really live in there and they're out now and they're food for animals so sometimes if we think we don't depend on others so much we only depend on bread we might even see that plows they don't come from out of the sky people go into mines and have difficult work, hard work, dangerous work, going down there doing whatever they do. I'm not quite sure even what they do. Get out the ore. And then the factories who melt it and who get the metals and who melt it into different machinery and tools. And then only can plowing take place. 
and it has to be harvested and it has to be whatever you do to wheat and all the different cereals transportation and baking people who get up in the, in the night to bake all night I don't know how it is here but in Switzerland bakers still get up at 3 in the morning so when they open when the shops open at 7 there's fresh bread and uh, people who sell it and people who again go and buy it or bring it and people who prepare breakfast and set it out for us. And then there it is, it's just a piece of bread. And you can take anything, a sweater, thinking of cotton fields and all it takes. I imagine that too is hard work, maybe not that well-paid work. The factories, the spinning and weaving and making textiles and Again, this incredible chain of people involved for our education. I mean, it comes from somewhere. Being born, we wouldn't live very long if we weren't taken care of. For years and years, we maybe couldn't make it if they were not our parents or whoever it was who kept us alive. who sometimes go through these contemplations and, and sort of we can always find reasons why they do it but to just go through it and get a sense of somebody being a miner somebody plowing a field somebody picking cotton somebody harvesting coffee in Africa or Brazil to get this sense of appreciation for that, to get a sense also of connectedness. In millions of ways we're connected. Leather for shoes and belts and all kinds of things that we need. Leather, silk is made from thousands of silk cocoons that are dumped into boiling water and then made into silk thread. And perhaps to be careful, it's not to make ourselves feel guilty. We're sometimes quite good at that. It's just to remember it's this network of beings and humans and animals that we depend on. They depend on us in many ways. There is one statement that comes from somewhere in the Tibetan tradition saying that um, we couldn't make it at all, with all without the others. Well, the others could make it easily without us. It's interesting, yeah? It seems true. We can play with exchanging place with others. Sometimes just take a moment and put ourselves in somebody else's place. Maybe in the place of the partner when we're having a hard time and we can't quite understand where they're coming from. Sometimes to just even bother to try to see how it 
must be on the other side. Just to take 10 seconds to see how it would be on the other side if somebody comes on you like I'm coming on that person now. Even the wanting to stand on the other side even opens up something, loosens some kind of tightness. Sit at the place of a beggar. Sit at the place of a slug that is going up to a salad. You know, we've just planted all this salad, whatever, seedlings, whatever they're called. And we don't want any slugs to go after them. Just really imagine, put yourself in the place of that slug, you know, instead of going. Just be really, you know, it's only that far away, but it feels like half a day's work of getting there. And then finally the hand comes and takes you away, or just, you know, people put these grains that poison them. Putting oneself in the place of a mosquito in our arm this hand up there. Now, and here's really what we need. I don't think we need to let mosquitoes do what they do, but we also don't need to finish them off. And the moment we change, I feel each time when I really bother to do that, something changes quite dramatically. In any situation, with authorities or people we think they're like I have certain ideas on politicians sometimes or on important people in economy and all that. And sometimes I just imagine being them, also the way they have had their life and they were brought up and with their family. It's not to excuse necessarily everything, but just to get a different feeling. All this is in a way done to practice opening up ways to make the first move, to break the ice, to somehow close the gap, bridge the separation between self and other. And somehow each time when we do each time we do it, it's risky. We take some risk, and it takes courage to do that. It's interesting to see how, in a way, love thrives on courage and taking risks to reach out, to be the first to connect, to Take the first step. This small story by Father Theophane that's called The Audacity of Humility. I walked up to an old, old monk and asked him, What is the audacity of humility? This man had never met me before, but do you know what his answer was? 
to be the first to say, I love you. It's risky to do that in a way. It takes humility and it takes courage. Because doing that means opening, making ourselves vulnerable. We might get hurt. We might not be recognized, might be rejected, be made fun of. And that would be painful. Be more painful than if we just don't take the risk or we stay closed. And yet, we must take the risk over and over again. Because if we don't, we'll feel more safe, but we'll also feel more flat, more numb, more dead. So, we could look at the things that block love. And they're good old friends. They're different klesha. They're aversion and hatred. And that's maybe the most obvious in a way that's the most, seems the most opposite. And in big ways, hatred, anger seems the most obvious. I'm not going to get into that now. But also, it can be just our general mood of being judgmental, of being a little down, down on ourselves, on others, and what we do, and how things are, to see what that does, judgmentality. But what blocks love is also indifference. For love to blossom needs to be real genuine interest. Otherwise it starves. It's also laziness. It takes an aliveness, it takes awakeness to love or else it lacks the energy, it lacks the necessary intensity. And a similar, but just opposite hindrance to it is busyness, speediness. It takes stopping. It takes, even if it's just inside, it doesn't have to be in our activity, but within, some desisting from the usual commotion. Need a moment of inner space, or else love will be run over. And the worst blocker, of course, as Stephen already mentioned, is fear. And it's, of course, exactly that which keeps us from taking a step towards, from reaching out, from opening our arms making the first move. And there, as we have seen, the key is to allow the fear to be there, to allow fear to be felt, and do it anyway. Whatever we were going to do, even when we were afraid. 
do it in spite of fear. I think far too often we wait, we somehow hope the fear will go and then we can reach out and do it. We can wait all our lives sometimes. Each time we try again, the fear comes up. So we have to do to act on what we feel is important in spite of the fear. And again, there we need to trust to take the risk. So when the clouds of fear and hate and aversion are absent, there is love. The mind already is loving. When the clouds of violence and aggression are absent, and cruelty, there is compassion. The mind is compassionate. Compassion considers if only sentient beings were separate from suffering. And sometimes it's described as unable to bear the suffering of living beings. And I don't think it's different from love, but it, what it is directed to, its object, is the suffering, suffering anywhere in beings. I find it important to understand from one's own experience that in a way compassion arises as a response to allowing ourselves to feel suffering. But if we're unable or unwilling to face suffering, to look at it, to open to it, to feel it, then how could there be any response that is compassionate? When you shrink away from it, avoid it, withdraw, close off. And we aren't even willing to be with a little knee pain or some irritation or a tension in the body. We need to learn to open to it. And again, that's what we learn here, what we learn in practice, not to run away. So going through all the various difficulties here has meaning. It has already meaning in itself. Learning to face, to confront, to feel the suffering first in ourselves. Once and only after we have been able to, to open to suffering within ourselves can we do it elsewhere? But then we can do it everywhere. Or to the degree we're able and willing to feel our own suffering, to that degree we'll be open for suffering anywhere, in anyone. And whenever, wherever the heart, the mind, really genuinely lets itself come in touch with suffering, its natural response will be compassion. Might be all kinds of reactions. First, anger, fear, avoidance. But eventually, once we open, 
it's compassion. And again, I think we must test this over and over for ourselves. Genuine compassion seems to arise in two ways. Arises is a feeling of compassion when the heart is touched. And it arises as active compassion when the heart that is truly touched reaches out. The first uh, feeling of compassion is expressed in a poem by the Zen poet Ryokan. Thinking about the people in this floating world far into the night, my sleeve is wet with tears. And in another poem, Ryokan expresses that wish that aspiration to do something, to act on the suffering. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. So our response to need, to pain, is to provide what is needed as far as this is possible, to do what we can do, to nourish, to support, to help, to heal. Whether it's inside or outside, whether it's here or there. Because we realize that it's not enough to feel compassionately. When we see somebody approaching a, a precipice, we need to act. It's not enough to feel, oh God, this poor person is going to fall over any minute. Quite obviously. So out of a deep sense of connectedness, out of a growing realization of the oneness of life, there comes the practice, the action, the life that includes the welfare of all of life. Shantideva gives an illustration of this. He says, when the leg is hurt, the hand will naturally take care of it. Though the hand doesn't actually feel the pain, it's the leg that, that's hurt and feels the pain. It's quite obvious, since this is the same life. It's in the same way when, other be when another being is hurt, we naturally want to care for that other being, even though we might not feel the pain that this other being is in, when there's an understanding that this is the same life. It's not different. It's not really separate though it might appear that way if we don't see clearly. It's interesting. I never liked that illustration. I always felt that it doesn't make sense. But with the years, somehow I start to quote it. I'm quite sure why. It's in this way of 
seeing through the separateness and the limitation and getting a deeper sense of connectedness of all of life, that the attitude of a bodhisattva arises. The vow or perhaps the inspiration of a bodhisattva are as follows. Sentient beings are numberless. will help to save them all. Inner conflicts are endless. will pacify them all. Teachings are infinite. will master them all. The Buddha's way is inconceivable and will attain it. And instead of a self-centered struggle, practice and vision become very vast. When the Tibetans speak of bodhicitta, that aspiration to work for all of life, or all of the sentient beings, they say, like normally someone's practice is like the sunlight that comes in through a keyhole in the door, and it can make bring quite some light into a room. Just the practice of a bodhisattva is like the sunlight that floods the countryside on a, on a beautiful, radiant day. It's vast. And Tibetan teachers sometimes add that when you harvest a crop, you do it for the purpose of getting the grain, right? Now, but in the pre- process of doing this, we'll also get straw as a quite useful side product. Though certain, we certainly wouldn't plant and harvest a whole crop for the sake of getting straw. So in the same way, If our practice and our whole life is motivated by love and compassion and by bodhicitta, being interested really deeply in the welfare of all sentient beings, of all of life, we, in the process of this, sort of as a side effect, one happens to be very happy. One happens to end suffering. One might not be so concerned about it. Or one might suffer and not even notice. Like the straw can be a useful side product. Being engaged in that kind of bodhisattva practice as a side product, the person who practices that way will be free will be in harmony with life, will experience happiness. It's just a useful side effect. The main concern is life as a whole, is all of life. Donald, it's just about one more second. So, we 
might feel that this is maybe asking a little much, and I feel it's important that we don't put big demands on ourselves with some kind of idealism. It's important that we take ourselves into that process, that we are just as much sentient beings as all other sentient beings. And compassion and love has to start here and go out from here and include all of life. So it doesn't mean that we need to pretend to be totally selfless beings and heroic bodhisattvas. But we can, and I think we must begin with bringing care, <clears throat> bringing kindness into our practice. Bringing a lot of kindness into our inner attitude towards everything that arises. And it's there where we must begin. To meet every moment's experience with a little bit more gentleness, perhaps, with a little bit more tolerance and allowing. To meet every moment of difficulty and suffering with a little bit of courage and with a little bit of compassion. And then the flower of love and the flower of compassion will grow and it will unfold and it will flower by itself and then it will spread its fragrance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.